Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. And today we'll be doing episode two titled You Are What You Eat. And so today we're going to talk about the history of the health message in the Seventh day Adventist Church. So let's go ahead and begin with the first health claim that was made by Ellen White. This dates back to the autumn of 1848. And she tells us a story where her accompanying angel instructed her that coffee, tea, and tobacco were injurious, even harmful. A few years later, 1854, this accompanying angel returned to Ellen White and told her that there was a lack of bodily cleanliness among Sabbath keepers, and control of appetite was sorely needed among them. And in fact, she goes on uh, in more detail regarding this uncleanliness. She says, I then saw a lack of cleanliness among Sabbath keepers. I saw that God was purifying unto himself a peculiar people. He will have a clean and holy people in whom he can delight. I saw that the camp must be cleansed, for God would pass by and see the uncleanness of Israel and would not go forth with their armies to battle. He would turn from them in displeasure, and our enemies would triumph over us, and we'd be left weak in shame and disgrace. I saw that God would not acknowledge an untidy, unclean person as a Christian. His frown was upon such. Our souls, bodies, and spirits are to be presented blameless by Jesus to his Father. And unless we are clean in person and pure, we cannot be presented blameless to God. Man, that first sentence of that second quote, I saw that God would not acknowledge an untidy, unclean person as a Christian. It's crazy, dude, because I feel like that one phrase, I feel like the spirit of the law of that phrase leads to so much religious trauma in the church. Some Mm -hmm. very heavy implications to the passage that we just read. So these were isolated statements. You know, these weren't visions per se. You know, Ellen White said that, you know, an angel came to her. But her first major vision regarding health took place on June 5th, 1863. The context of this vision was that her husband, James White, had been experiencing burnout from his work. And while they were assembled for family worship at Aaron Hilliard's house, she was taken into vision for about 45 minutes. This vision contained counsel on how to alleviate James White's health, as well as general health counsel for the church. Uh, Later on that year in the summer, Ellen White wrote a more complete account of the instruction given to her in the vision, and that can be found in Spiritual Gifts, Volume 4. So I just wanted to give a a brief brief summary regarding the evolution of these ideas of of health, going from something that her accompanying angel told her to being given a full-fledged vision, a 45 five minutes long, recounting how not, not just to help James and his health, but general health counsel for the entire denomination. So I want to I pivot. I want to go to the year 1908. 
And it's in the year 1908 where we we discovered a really interesting story that involves Ellen White and the general conference president at that time, uh, A.G. Daniels. So let's go ahead and dive into that story. A true reformation needs to take place among the believers in Washington in the matter of healthful living. If the believers there will give themselves unreservedly to God, he will accept them. If they will adopt in the matter of eating and drinking the principles of temperance that the light of health reform has brought to us, they will be richly blessed. Those who have received instruction regarding the evils of the use of flesh meats, tea and coffee, and rich and unhealthful food preparations, and who are determined to make a covenant with God by sacrifice, will not continue to indulge their appetites for foods which they know to be unhealthful. God demands that the appetites be cleansed and self-denial be practiced in regard to those things which are not good. This is a work that will have to be done before his people can stand before him, a perfected people. The Lord has given clear light regarding the nature of the food that is to compose our diet. He has instructed us concerning the effect of unhealthful food upon the disposition and character. Shall we respond to the counsels and cautions given? Who among our brethren will sign a pledge to dispense with flesh meats, tea, and coffee, and all injurious foods, and become health reformers in the fullest sense of the term? She was requesting that this pledge be circulated among the pastors of the, of the general conference. An interesting theme is starting to come alive here, and we can talk about it more a little bit later on. But the interesting theme that I was looking at was the previous quote that Orlando read, talking about health, talking about being clean, right? How she had said that God would not acknowledge an untidy, unclean person as a Christian. And now here, in the instance of the meat pledge, what it became known as, she was saying, um, this is a work that will have to be done before his people can stand before God, a perfected people. So one of these underpinnings was there's this theological, and more specifically, this salvific underpinning in her councils of diet and food, right? It wasn't just like, hey, let's eat um, what God tells us we should eat because this is how we were created, or it will be healthier if we do so, but it's... God will literally not consider you a Christian unless you do this, right? Or this is a work that has to be done if you want to stand before God. So it, it, it's a little bit more, um, there's, a, there's a little bit heavier of an implication there versus just health for health's sake, right? No, you're absolutely right. It's more than just general advice. Hey, guys, uh, you know, this you know, this is really the, the, the optimal way we ought to be eating and conducting our lives. It's if you take your Christian walk seriously, if you take your salvation seriously, then you need to do these things. You need to, like she said, dispense to do away with all unhealthy foods. So A.G. Daniels wrote a letter back uh, to Ellen White. 
and he essentially requested that they meet together in person so that they could talk about the matter. A.G. Daniels was rather perplexed because this was a, a large request that Ellen White had made of him in circulating this, uh, this meat pledge. And so they met together, uh, they discussed, and the conclusion of that discussion was that the meat pledge would not be circulated. So the, the meat pledge was essentially scrapped. It would not be circulated among the pastors or, or the members. And instead, what was to be done was that physicians would visit you know, individual churches and would talk about the benefits of health reform to talk about the benefits of a vegetarian lifestyle, to talk about the benefits of essentially what we as Adventists know as the eight laws of health. And so that is essentially the resolution uh, of that story. So what are the eight laws of health? So the, the idea of the eight laws of health are essentially a, a distillation of the ideas found within Ellen White's writings regarding health. The first law is pure air, followed by sunlight, temperance, rest, exercise, proper diet, water, and trust in divine power. So these are the, the eight laws of health that, are, that were essentially posited by the, the writings of Ellen White. And from the sound of it, I mean, it's, it's really good advice. Like it's really good guiding advice if you want to, uh, to be healthy. I mean, there's nothing wrong with pure air, sunlight, temperance, rest, uh, exercise. I mean, I, I believe in all that stuff. Yeah, I was thinking because, you know, I'm senile like that. <laughs> I was thinking about the eight laws of health and how there's two potential applications of them, right? Because I think on one hand... You're right. Those are really good pieces of advice, right? Sunlight, fresh air, being outside and not being cooped up indoors the entire day. Um, those, those are good principles in general. But then I figured that there was these two out of the eight that were interesting. Like one of them was trust and divine power. And the other one was temperance because it really depends on what, how you, how you interpret those, right? Like temperance, you could interpret as doing things in moderation, right? Not being excessive when it comes to what you eat and things like that. But I know that a lot of the things that Ellen White wrote were influenced by the temperance movement. So, and some of those things could have been a little bit more extreme. And we'll talk a little bit more about that soon about, you know, some extreme absolute statements that she made versus more general counsels on health. Um, and then the trust and divine power, I think the face value of that sounds great, but did she mean trust and divine power via my writings, right? So like, don't go against what I'm writing about this health message stuff. So that's why I'm just like, you know, I think it's good in general, but depending on how this is applied, it could be dangerous, right? Especially if people today in the church misconstrue the meaning of it to just try to establish these mechanisms of control in their, in their membership. Time travel back to the 1830s, right? And if you were trying to avoid getting sick with like cholera, for example, if you went to the doctor and you asked for their advice, the average doctor would tell you, okay, well, if you want to avoid cholera, 
what you need to do is you need to increase your meat intake. You need to drink more wine and you need to avoid vegetables. That is a surefire way of avoiding uh, cholera or other diseases, right? I mean, this was the time where people were still, you know, putting leeches on themselves to get rid of the bad blood, right? So there was a lot of medical misinformation circulating at that time. It almost kind of sounds like today, where, you know, if you get on social media or on TikTok, boy, you will find a lot of medical misinformation. I'm really glad you mentioned the whole leeches thing, because one huge aspect to growing up in the Adventist church, that was a big part of Ellen White lore, is almost her unparalleled wisdom when it came to things about the health message, right? It was like how it was always recounted to me in my youth and how Ellen White came up with these things is that she was this visionary. She was ahead of her time. And it's like, imagine the world was like the dark ages and there was no law and no science and the cure to everything was, you know, drinking half a bottle of bleach. Oh, my bad, that's 2022. Uh, the cure to everything was going and getting leeches on you, right? And and they're like, they would suck your blood and then you would be cleansed, right? The disease would come out of you in your blood and things like that. So they would always paint this picture as Ellen White was the one true source of intelligence in the medical and health sector of her time while everyone else is like running around with like clubs and stones you know they're like they're all cavemen and she's she knows the truth so i just wanted to say that to to really so that orlando you can talk a little bit more about that but that's just the context that i don't know about you but that's the context that i grew up in was like she was a visionary no one else was coming up with this medical wisdom and golden nuggets that Ellen White was coming up with at that time. No, I was, I think a lot of Adventists are under that, that impression where Ellen White was like a hundred years ahead of everyone else. And she was the one that, you know, you know, was given, you know, God gave her all these ideas and she just shared it with, with the world. And as if these ideas hadn't been circulating prior to her ministry. And so I and guess bro, can... I've heard that exact figure before that whole, like she was a century ahead of her time, you know? Oh, it, it's a, it's a very common claim. And so I think that is a good segue to what we want to talk about next was Alan White really ahead of her time. So in order to, to, you know, to see if that's true, we have to look at individuals who were, who were writing prior to her, prior to her ministry and see if they talked about the same things. And so we can start with uh, the founder of the Methodist Church, John Wesley. And so health reform was an important part of the Methodist religion. Uh, John Wesley associated physical well-being to spiritual health. Uh, Wesley believed that health and healing were integral parts of the gospel message. And he actually even authored a number of books on health reform. And so here are some of the health reforms that he practiced and advocated for in the 1700s. Moderation in food and drink, 
warned against intemperance, indolence, overeating, excessive passions, um, frowned upon medicines such as opium, uh, advocated for two days of, or not two days, two hours of uh, walking per day. Um, plain foods are the best. Avoid highly seasoned foods uh, and discourage the use of sugar, as well as abstaining from tea, coffee, and other stimulants, as well as coffee or uh, tobacco. Then fast forward. Now, now we're in the 1800s. So we have an individual by the by the name of Marie. Louis Shu, and she had written a book titled Water Cure for Ladies, a popular work on the health, diet, and regimen of females and children, and the prevention of care, the prevention and care of diseases. That's a long book title. And in that book, she teaches the following, that alcohol is a deadly poison. Drug medicines are most pernicious. Get rid of salt. Spices such as mustard, pepper, and vinegar are pernicious. Tea is one of the most destructive poisons. Tobacco, very destructive poison. Um, a vegetarian diet will promote good health. Cheese is hard for the body to digest. Two meals a day are better for sedentary persons. And of course, we also have to mention Joseph Smith. Uh, in 1833, he had a number of ideas that he shared in his health reform, such as tobacco being forbidden, hot drinks, according to him, which were coffee and tea, are not designed for the body. Um, for him, meat was allowed, but it should be eaten sparingly. And the use of wine and strong alcoholic drinks were uh, forbidden. And then, of course, we have Sylvester Graham. Sylvester Graham was known as the father of the clean living movement. In 1849, he promoted the following reforms in, in his book to avoid all simulating and unnatural foods. Butter should be used sparingly. Condiments and spices such as pepper, mustard, and cinnamon were banned as being highly exciting and exhausting. Tea and coffee were, were poisonous, and all medicine is in itself an evil. And that's so, interesting what he was saying about condiments. So in Ministry of Healing, chapter 26, talking about condiments, it's interesting. The title of that chapter is Stimulants and Narcotics. And in that chapter, she talks about like condiments like salt, pepper, mustard, right? And it says, in this fast age, <laughs> this fast age of 1905, the less exciting the food, the better. Condiments are injurious in their nature mustard, pepper, spices, pickles, and other things of a like character irritate the stomach and make the blood feverish and impure. I decided it was interesting that you mentioned that, you know, Sylvester Graham, uh, another contemporary writing about mustard and pepper and, and condiments being something that we should stay away from. And the reason why many of these health reformers advocated that we stay away from those things was that they would essentially arouse the lower passions, right? So they would essentially make you more prone to sinning. And that's why so many of the health reformers were against all of these uh, condiments. And, you know, there is a larger story to be told here in regard to why so many individuals in the 1800s 
were against these things. Many, many of these individuals, they perceived in their, in their society a, a crisis of morality and self-control. And they believed that these foods were the reason. But when, when you look into the systemic issues that were going on, in the 1830s was toward the end of the first industrial revolution. And this is where the nature of, uh, of, of life and work fundamentally changed. You had a lot of people moving from the countryside into the cities so that they could perform wage labor. Wage labor was, was becoming the only viable source of income for pretty much most individuals in America. And this work, you know, you'd be working anywhere between 12 to 18 hour shifts. And that was extremely exhausting. And toward the end of the 1800s, we had, there were, you know what, there's a, a book that actually talks about this. It's titled uh, Work Without Salvation. It's a book written back in the 1970s where, they, where this guy talked about how Americans were suffering from a mental illness known as neurasthenia. Now, neurasthenia was essentially a catch-all term to describe anxiety, uh, depression, and lack of motivation. And the author cites all the stuff that the reformers were saying, yeah, crisis of morality, self-control, but it was due to these horrible working conditions, as well as horrible living conditions, which led to people becoming more uh, impulsive, right? Their window of tolerance for stress would it just shrank which led to people acting out, right? Which, you know, as Christians, we consider to be sin. But a lot of the health reformers, because they didn't perceive systemic issues, they could only blame individual behaviors for being the reason for this supposed crisis of morality and self-control. I'm really glad you mentioned that because I think that it's easy for us to separate quotes from the fact that they happened within a very real historical context. Uh, I think that one of the challenges for us today, not just us like you and me, right, but Christianity in general, is separating a source from its context, right? Taking something completely out of context and saying, like, this particular text has universal application. So in the example that you laid out about the health performers and Ellen White, how they were harping on condiments and mustard and pepper and, you know, coffee and flesh roots and things like that. And Ellen made quite some absolute statements about, about things regarding health and how they could impact one's salvation. So then in 2023, Christians and Seventh-day Adventists specifically and correct me if I'm wrong, um, but my perception is that we'll take this, completely remove it from the very real historical context that it was written in, and say, okay, this has historical, this has universal application. So today in 2023, if we partake in coffee or tea, if we are not living a vegetarian lifestyle, then there is going to be very real theological and salvific implications with that. But what do you think about that? No, I think you're absolutely right. Because again, it's one thing if you decide to be a vegetarian because it's better for your health. You know, it's one thing to decide to be a vegetarian because you look at the 
the the meat packing industry and and you see how brutal it is to to animals right like it, it like those are perfectly valid reasons like you know if those are your convictions go for it i think that's great i just think it becomes problematic when we tell people that if you want to be accepted by god right if you want to be presented to god at the end of time you know as a collective as a peculiar people and you have to be vegetarian in order to do that i think that's where we we really run into some problems and that's kind of where religious trauma comes in because you begin to lose that autonomy that each of us are given you know you know paul tells us it is for freedom that christ has set us free and it is the spirit that guides us uh, via via our conscience you know to indicate to us you know what is what is good in in what is bad and by forcing a vegetarianism or telling individuals that meat coffee tea or or any other things will potentially jeopardize your salvation we are in infringing upon the freedom that Christ has given us. Hey, we're not saying throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? We're not saying get rid of the eight principles of health. You know, stay inside all day. Don't get any fresh air. Don't exercise, right? Don't be moderate in your food consumption and things like that. We're not saying these are not good counsels that you should not follow today. But what we are saying is we think that there's a danger when we start to head into the spiritual realm of these things have salvific implications, right? And that oh, we should be applying this today by really inflicting some very real religious trauma on people. Because not only are we saying that this affects our salvation, our eternal our eternal salvation, right? But it says this affects God's perception of us. So like how God himself sees us, how he relates to us is impacted by whether or not we're vegetarian, right? By whether or not we abstain from coffee and tea. So I think that's when it really gets dangerous when we start to to say like, this is going to impact me in this spiritual way. It's going to affect my relationship with God. So I, I think it might be helpful to look at a few different statements from Ellen White regarding health reform. She has absolute statements regarding the necessity of health reform, but she also has some variable statements regarding health reform. So I think it might be helpful to, to explore those. So I want to share two of the absolute statements first. Vegetables, fruits, and grains should compose our diet. Not an ounce of flesh meat should enter our stomachs. The eating of flesh is unnatural. We are to return to God's original purpose in the creation of man. Here's another quote. God demands that the appetite be cleansed and that self-denial be practiced in regard to those things which are not good. This is a work that will have to be done before his people can stand before him, a perfected people. So these two statements are absolute in the sense that flesh meat cannot be eaten. Things that are, to, are perceived as unhealthy or injurious are to be totally abstained from. However, Ellen White also has some variable statements in regard to health reform. Here's one. Where plenty of good milk and fruit can be obtained, there is rarely any excuse for eating animal food. It is not necessary to take the life of any of God's creatures to supply our ordinary needs. 
In certain cases of illness or exhaustion, it may be thought best to use some meat, but great care should be taken to secure the flesh of healthy animals. It has come to be a very serious question whether it is safe to use flesh food at all in this age of the world. It would be better never to eat meat than to use the flesh of animals that are not healthy. When I could not obtain the food I needed, I have sometimes eaten a little meat, but I am becoming more and more afraid of it. Here's another variable statement. A meat diet is not the most wholesome of diets, and yet I would not take the position that meat should be discarded by everyone. Those who have feeble digestive organs can often use meat when they cannot eat vegetables, fruit, or porridge. So we have... How do you... I was just going to say, how do you relate to or or interpret this, right? Because it's a pretty stark contrast between these absolute salvific statements and then these variable, well, if this, then that statements, right? It can be a little difficult to reconcile. And what makes it difficult to reconcile is the absolute nature of some of the things that she has said. Such as, you know, if, if you want to be presented to God, or to be presented acceptable to him, this is what you have to do, right? And then she, you know, also has those variable quotes. So it, it is tough to reconcile. But at the same time, she does show a degree of nuance, which I think is helpful. Because there, there's a story that comes to mind for me, where an individual came to Ellen White, and he told her a story about how a... A church member, this church member lived in Norway, had read Ellen White's writings regarding health reform. And he chose to abstain from, from meat and just to eat vegetables. Now, during, a, during the winter season uh, in Norway, meat uh, or vegetables were in very, very short supply. And this individual became malnourished and emaciated. And when this story was told Ellen White, she said, why don't the people have more common sense? Like, she literally said that. And, you know, I'm inclined to agree. Like, like that's, that's crazy. You know, how would this guy, like, he's in Norway. Like, in winter, vegetables are just going to be in short supply. And the, the flip same... side of that, yeah, there, I'm like, the flip side of that is, sure, it's easy to say, it's very convenient to say, why don't people have more common sense? in facing that story right when she's hearing that somebody's like very unhealthy and the supplies are scarce right so i think it it's convenient to say well man why aren't people smarter why why don't they have more common sense but what's the context the context of that story there's this dude that literally read her writings her counsels on diet and food and saw that she said there is a moral evil in eating flesh foods. We should abstain from these things. An unclean person cannot stand before God. These people cannot be considered Christians. So it's like, like you said, right? There's How do you reconcile the fact that it's so absolute? You cannot even stand before God as his chosen people. 
Yet, let's use our common sense when it comes to things like this. Yeah, for me, this story illustrates that we ought to do that. But despite that, these absolute statements almost make it seem as if there's no room for common sense. It's as if, okay, you've told me that this is a moral issue. And logically speaking, if it's a moral issue and I don't comply, now my salvation is in jeopardy. So, And I think this is just illustrative of the fact that Ellen White tended to be rather hyperbolic in her writings. I think she'd get really passionate about what she wrote. And in that passion, she tended to go to extremes. And I, and I think later in her life, she got better about, she got better about that sort of thing, where she didn't lean to such extremes. I, I think we have to acknowledge a, a growth in her life. What, what do you think about that? I think that a good takeaway from trying to reconcile the absolute versus the variable statement is that let's use our common sense. And I think that when it comes to church leadership, when it comes to just individuals in the church as well, they need to, I'm not saying everybody does it, right? But I'm saying those who do employ these tactics, 2023, this day and age, is not when we should have a universal application to these absolute statements on health in relation to salvation. You know what I mean? I think that we can take these things and we can reason. We can use common sense and we can apply some of these good principles to our lives today and they can result in us being healthier without us inflicting religious trauma on our church membership. You know, saying that they're less than by not being vegetarian, saying that their standing with God is impacted, that their salvation is in jeopardy. What do you think our responsibility is today in 2023 when it comes to how we should relate with these things? I will take Ellen White's advice and say that we should use our common sense. Common sense that guides us to say, well, you know, you know, in her writings, there are some helpful things and there are also some unhelpful things. And as I read, I will see, okay, I'm going to hold on to this. Eight laws of health, definitely going to hold on to that. It's good stuff. It indicates to me that God is concerned about my health. You know, God designed our bodies, right? He knows what is best for us. And I think as we grow as individuals, we will learn to want to care for ourselves more, right? Uh, as, like Jesus said, if you know, love your neighbor as yourself, right? There's a, a degree of self-love when it comes to taking care of yourself. And as long as you don't tie your salvation to it, then I, th I think you're good. You know, it's like how salvation gets presented. You don't obey in order to be saved, but you're like, you know, you will obey as a result of being saved. Obe obedience, not in the sense of, you know, like, the, you know, trying to do good works, but obedience in the sense of, yeah, I, I, I want to live in a way that is healthy, you know, not just like for my body, but like re relational health. Yeah, I think this is a good place to, to end this episode, but... I'm really excited about the next episode for multiple reasons, but it, number one, the next thing that we're going to talk about is gender roles, and we're going to cover some some good stuff like the church's obsession with hierarchy, agency, objectification of women, but I think we've got a good episode lined up. But another good thing about the next episode is 
we are going to be in the same place at the same time talking to you. So for the first time in this series, um, Orlando's going to come out to Tennessee where I'm at from Texas. So we're, we're excited to be able to present that and, and have it in a little bit of a different format, both of us in the same place. So looking forward to, to sharing that with you all at the next episode.